Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Amen. You can be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Chapter 1. In our Restore series, we've been going through this whole book. And to prepare us for next week, we're going back to chapter 1 to see uh, God's work in the heart and mind of Nehemiah. Back in 1982, I was working in Houston, Texas. My family lived in El Paso. I was at work. I got a phone call. Said it was my dad. I picked up the phone. Whenever family calls in the middle of the day, y'all, I always wonder. And it was bad news. He said, your mom has been diagnosed with cancer. And uh, we did not, that's the first person in our family that had been diagnosed with that. And it was devastating. I can remember, I hung up the phone. I was just kind of numb. I went back and found an empty office where no one was in there. And I just sat on the floor in the darkness and wept and cried and said, oh God, what now? I think that emotion that I felt that day is Somewhat the same kind of emotion that Nehemiah feels when he gets some news that is devastating. He's brokenhearted and he does much like I did. He just cries out to God, what now? If you would follow along as I read in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, during the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them, about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. Remember we said that Nehemiah was called by God, and we're looking at that passage right now, to leave that place of exile, that place of captivity in Babylon and Persia, and to go back to Jerusalem because the the city was in ruins. And that's exactly what happens. He gets this word. He's still in exile at this point. He's still away from his homeland, and he's brokenhearted. How far did I get? Verse 3. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned down. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, here's the record of Nehemiah's prayer, I love this, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, the statutes, and the ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, which is exactly what God had done because of their unfaithfulness. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the ends of the earth, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. That's Jerusalem. They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere or to worship or to honor your name. Give your servant success today and have compassion on him in the presence of this man. 
At that time, I was the king's cupbearer. Let's stop right there. We're going to talk about some guidelines today. Today's message is more instructional than inspirational. I want to give us some practical guidelines for prayer and fasting. We've said all through the the series on Restore that God's goal is to restore a broken people so that we could be in that place of, of worship where he alone is master and Lord of every area of our lives so he in turn could use us to draw other people to himself. And that's where we are right here. Nehemiah is expressing the brokenness of his heart and the brokenness of the people of God and their need to be restored by him. The key verse is verse 4. When I heard these words, when I, when I got the bad news about the spiritual state of things, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept and I mourned for a number of days. I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Well, I want us to look at some guidelines for prayer because I'm going to be asking you this week to make a specific, concentrated effort to pray more intently and more focused than you have been praying at least for this this week on the the restore wrap-up of the series. I'm going to ask you to pray intently, and then we're going to ask you to fast if you would pray about that. So let's look, first of all, at some guidelines for prayer. I love what Jack Taylor said about prayer. He said, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. In other words, it's not everything we do that's so important, but undergirding it with prayer is essential. And prayer is not a one-sided communication where I I talk to God and tell him what my needs are and what my hurts are and ask him for things. Prayer is two-way communication where I speak and share my heart with God and I listen and God shares his heart with me. So it's communication. It's It's all about a relationship. So maybe this week as we encourage you to spend every day in prayer and maybe sometime fasting, we just pray that God would strengthen that relationship you have with him. So here's some guidelines. Number one, we're going to take Nehemiah's prayer and we're going to apply it to us today. Number one, remember and begin with God. Remember to begin with God and not the problem. I love this. Nehemiah is devastated. He is broken. His heart is so broken that he's grieving. And what does he do? He begins in verse 5 by saying, God of heaven, you're great, you're awesome. We've been singing that all day. You're awe-inspiring. You kept your gracious covenant with those who love you and keep your commands. He starts with who God is, focusing on God, not the problem. So important. Two phrases that I learned years ago that that helped me. First of all, when I pray, I need to gaze at God. That's letter A if you're taking notes. Gaze at God and glance at the problem. Gaze at God, glance at the problem. The focus of Nehemiah's prayer is God and God's greatness and what God has said and done. And then if you'll just look at verse 11 there, as he wraps it up, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Look at this. Give your servant success today and have compassion on him. Nehemiah is praying for himself in the presence of this man. This man is the king. He's about to go to King Artaxerxes and make this plea. He's about to go to this powerful pagan king that is one who's holding them in in captivity and say, I need to go back and I need to take some people back with me. So I love this. Nehemiah is saying, God, you're great. And my problem is just a man, just this man. He's one of the most powerful men in the world at the time. But Nehemiah puts it in perspective. Don't you love that? Gaze at God, glance at the problem. Now, I don't know if you're like me. You probably are. I have a tendency to reverse that. I gaze at the problem, and I glance at God. And I'm overwhelmed with how bad it is. That's the Eeyore mentality. Anybody else have that one? Come on, be honest. All right, okay, Lord. Looks pretty bad, but I know you're going to take care of it. That's my tendency. 
And, and Nehemiah gives me hope and encouragement to say, I am going to focus my gaze on God. He's a big, awe-inspiring, mighty God. Memorize the words to that choir song. That'll get you in the, in the right place. Incredible, omnipotent, powerful. That's who you are. And just glance at the problem. We taught our kids to drive. That we had to, to teach them this lesson. Back in those days, Lamar Holiday Beach wasn't very well populated. It's getting more populated now. But we could go out there, and there were all those roads that seemed to go nowhere. And we'd just get out there and put the kids in the driver's seat, and let's drive. And we always tell them, be sure and look, look way out there, not just right in front of you. Way out there. You keep your eyes out there, and you glance, you, you glance close by and look, gaze out there. That's, that's our walk with the Lord. That's Nehemiah right here. God, I know the problem's there, but I'm going to keep my eyes on you. So remember that. So that's how I begin to pray when there's a crisis. Number two, remind God of his own word. Pretty smart. Now, God didn't forget it. God doesn't have to be reminded that he said it, but it's a good thing in my prayer life, in your prayer life, to remind God of what he said. My, my son had this saying all the time. He, he was one of those people that would hold me to my word. I don't know when I said it, but sometime when he was a little bitty kid, I told him that when, when you say something, that's a promise. I'm going to do that? That's a promise. So he would remind me all the time, Dad, remember, a saying is a promise. You said we're going to go to that concert? A saying is a promise. You said we're going to take that camping trip? A saying is a promise. And I, I had to be reminded to be because I'm a flawed human dad. But it was good to have my son remind me of what I said. Yeah, I, I did say we were going camping this weekend. Now, how am I going to make this happen? God, God's not flawed like we are, but it's encouraging for us to say back to him, God, this is what you said, and it uplifts me. Here, here's what I do. Verses 8 through 10 is, is Nehemiah reminding God, basically, of what he said in his own word. In 8, he says, remember the commands you gave. And that, the, first of all, he starts off with a negative command. If you're unfaithful, I'm going to scatter you. Then he goes on to say, if we're careful to obey your commands, the focus is on the commands of the word of God. So two things here. When I think about reminding God of his word, I want to pray the word back to God. Pray the word back to him. If you're struggling with what to pray in any situation, find a scripture that addresses that and just pray that back to God. You will always be in God's will because you're praying the word of God. You're praying truth to him. And and that takes me to to the next part of how you do that. You personalize the word. Praying the word of God back to God, we make it personal. Personalize the word. Two examples I want to give you. I just chose these. Romans chapter 8, because they're a couple of my favorite passages. Romans chapter 8, this great uh, testimony of the greatness of God when he's at work in our lives. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28. You know the story? Uh, I mean, you know the passage? We know that God works in all things for the good of those who love God. That, That passage, for those who are called according to his purpose. Here's how I would take that passage and personalize it for me, all right? God, I know that in all things you're working for the good. You're working for the good for me because I love you. And I know, God, that you've called me according to your purpose because you say those you've called you foreknew and you predestined me to be conformed to the image or the likeness of your son. Isn't that great? And and to go on to verse 30, and I know that I'm predestined and called and, and justified and ultimately will be glorified. That's personalizing the word of God. There's another passage in Ephesians chapter chapter 3. The whole book of Ephesians, most of this, especially this first section, is Paul's prayers. I love this. But in chapter 3, verse 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father. Paul is praying this prayer. Here's how I would make it personal for me. 
For this reason I kneel before you, my Father, for whom every family in heaven and earth has been named. And I pray that you would grant me, according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with power in my inner man through your Spirit, and that the Messiah would dwell in my heart through faith. And I pray that that I would be rooted and, and firmly established in love, that I would be able to comprehend with all saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love. And I just made that personal. You can take another person's name and put that in there. You can say, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, and and I pray that my friend will be strengthened by power in the inner man. I pray that my friend will be rooted and firmly established. Do you see how to do that? We're going to give you a guideline. Well, It's actually in your your, uh, connection, God. I hope you have it. Uh, that we'll look at in just a minute, that gives you some ways to pray the word of God back to the Lord. So number three, we're going to remember to start with God and not the problem. Number two, we're going to remind God of his own word. Number three, we're going to rehearse the truths of the promises of God. Rehearse the truths of the promises of God. That's what Nehemiah does back in Nehemiah chapter one, verse nine. If you return to me, and carefully observe my commands. Then your exiles will be banished, who will be banished from the earth, will be gathered from there, brought to the place I chose for my name to dwell. Here's what Nehemiah does. He's rehearsing. There's a promise, there's a promise, there's a promise. We've messed up, and he's already said that. We're going to give a, this church an opportunity to do that next Sunday night in a sacred assembly. We're just going to say it, and I'm going to lead you to say, God, we messed up. We've sinned. We've fallen short. But thank you for the promise of your word that, that we'll look at Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. What happens next? Then he'll hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. We're going to do that. That's what Nehemiah is doing right here, rehearsing the promises of God. First of all, his promise that he gives there is a promise to restore his people. Letter A, if you're taking notes in verse 9, God, you've, you've promised that we will be brought back. You will be gathering us to the place that you chose for your name to dwell. The promise of restoration, Nehemiah says. There's a promise in the word that applies to us. That's why this series is called Restore. God wants to take us broken, messed up people and restore us to a place of obedience and holiness and righteousness. Secondly, if you're taking notes, Nehemiah looks at the promise of his presence. I love this. He will will gather them, verse 9, from from that place and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. I love that. God says, this is that place, Jerusalem, and he's the promise of his presence. I love what the psalmist said about that. Psalm 139, another one of my favorite passages. It's interesting, whenever I go to illustrate with passages, I just go to my favorites. I can do that because I'm robbing this train. All right? Verse 7 in in Psalm 139, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the grave, you're there. If I live on the eastern horizon or settle on the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. I love this, this promise of the presence of God. So if if Nehemiah 1 wasn't enough of a promise, I personally can go to Psalm 139 and say, God, you have a promise of your presence and I claim that. I claim that every Sunday morning. When our men meet here and we we pray right here and we kneel at these steps and, and say, God, make these steps an altar, we pray for God's presence in this place, that it would be known. That's part of what prayer does. It reminds us of God's place. Number three, Nehemiah also reminds himself of his responsibility to obey. When I pray, I need to be reminded of my responsibility to obey. That's what Nehemiah is saying here. If we return to you, um, again, I'm 
applying to personalizing. If we return to you, God, then you're going to do this. This is your promise. And that leads me to the last point there. Not only my responsibility to obey, but my involvement in God's plan and purpose. Have you ever prayed, oh God, save my next door neighbor. I want him to go to heaven. God, send someone to share Christ with them. Go ahead, God, send someone. Please. What's God probably saying to me that whole prayer? What about you, Kevin? They're like your next door neighbor. See, when I begin to pray for God to move, God, revive this church. What about you, Kevin? Love the old evangelist that said, the definition of revival is to draw a circle with chalk and then step in the middle of it and say, or to draw a circle with chalk and say, start revival in the middle of that circle and then you step in the middle of it. What's my part in this? As you pray this week and we seek the Lord and we ask God to restore us to a place where, where, where we're revived, where God's, God's presence is sense in everything we do to take us to that place of restoration, God's going to want you to be involved in that. Nehemiah knew that. In verse 11 there, he talks about asking God to grant him uh, favor in the presence of this man. Nehemiah was just about to go to the king. God, I want you to restore Jerusalem. I want you to do a work in those broken people. And God, here I am. Send me. He didn't really say that, but that's what he's saying, right? Just like Isaiah, God says, who will go? Who will preach? Who will, who, will, who will proclaim? And Isaiah says, here I am. Isaiah chapter 6. Here I am. Send me. Many of us operate like Moses. Here am I. Send Aaron. It's not the way it works. As I pray, as you pray this week, you need to be open to God using you in the process. He may speak to your heart about confessing sin to someone. He may speak to your heart about reconciling a relationship. He may speak to your heart about praying more intently for someone in this congregation. You be involved in that. Number four, as as Nehemiah prays, he reveals his own attitude. So I need to reveal my own attitude. Back to chapter one in Nehemiah, verse four. He weeps, he's mourning, he's praying, he's broken, he's humbled. And as you read through this passage, verse, uh, verse eight, remember your servant, Moses, Remember your servant now as he goes through this passage. And remember your servants who pray. Uh, Nehemiah sees himself as a servant. So you need to see yourself as a servant. See yourself as a servant. I love the story that's told by um, a man who attended way back in the 70s. The Billy Graham Association used to have a Lusane Bible conference. And they'd be involved. There's a conference of evangelists. And this one one pastor was uh, uh, attending. And he just really led a small a group of foreign students at, at his college in Canada. And he, he met a man there in, in his small group, and every night this man short, shared about, uh, when they broke up in small groups, about his, his humility and his brokenness and how he had struggled and how God had done these great things in his life and just gave God glory for just a, just a simple, humble testimony. And at the end of the conference, like a lot of guys do at conferences, everybody gives each other their business card, and he just stuck them in his pocket. He's on the airplane flying home, and he's reflecting as, as an evangelist on being at that group of those men and just thinking about that one guy, how humble he was and, and, and how, how simple and broken his life was. And he pulled out the guy's card and it turned out that he was like the archbishop of some deal in Kenya. I mean, like a, one of the most prominent positions in the church of Kenya. 
He said it broke his heart that here was a guy who had all this notoriety, all this authority. He never said anything about that. All he did was he talked about himself as a broken, humble servant of God. That's a good way to be remembered, isn't it? Not what your title is, but your attitude. That's where Nehemiah is. Secondly, you see yourself as God sees you. To see yourself as God sees you. He says in verse 6, I confess the sins we have committed against you. That's everybody. But he says both I and my father's house have sinned. To see yourself as God sees you. When you pray, again, it's a relationship and God's to be at work in your life and he's to be doing a work. And it's not just telling him what you need or what you want. It's, it's listening to his spirit speak to your heart. To see yourself as God sees you. That's, a, that's important, important part of prayer. I remember a few years back, I was sitting in a barber chair here in Rockport, and they put the, the gray, I mean the black uh, plastic thing over you, that neat apron that catches all the hair. And I'm just sitting there and looking in the mirror, watching her cut my hair, and I just glance down, and this nice black plastic apron is covered with all this gray. And I, 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 I looked at it, and then I looked all the, all the floor around the chair around me, it's covered with gray hair, and I went, I mean, I'm thinking to myself, where did all that come from? And I, I actually said out loud, I said, oh my goodness, is my hair really that gray? And she says, uh, yeah. I said, I said, could it be the lights in here? I mean, these fluorescents, they, I hear they do that. She said, no, your hair is that gray. And that was an eye-opener for me. I might have even gone home and told Kelly, I've got gray hair. Sometimes we need somebody just to remind us. And when we seek God in prayer like this, he reminds us that I'm reminded my hair's gray and it's fallen out, right? But spiritually, reveal your own attitude. Number five, in prayer, rely on God to change your circumstances. Rely on God to change your circumstances. In verse 11, he says, God, give your servant success in in the presence of this man. God, you work in the heart of the king. Those two truths there. He'll answer according to his word. He always will. And secondly, he'll even work in the hearts of pagan men who don't know him. God, remember me and deal with that king because he's going to have to make a decision about this. And that's the way God works. Rely on God to make the change. Those are some guidelines for prayer. I want you just to look at this blue insert. Week of prayer and fasting, prayer guide. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do, congregation. For the next week, the next seven days, starting today, we want to pray down and pray through these strongholds. We want to pray down these strongholds. A, a friend of mine, Omar Garcia, has, has put together this study, this, uh, this prayer guide, and I'm using it. He, he takes a passage in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, seven sins that the Lord hates, and he comments on how the enemy uses those seven things to distance us from God. So just every day on Monday, or I'm sorry, on today, we're going to look at that prayer sometime this afternoon or tonight in, in Proverbs 6. And then on Monday, we're going to pray about haughty eyes. On Tuesday, a lying tongue. On Wednesday, hands that shed innocent blood. And there's some scriptures for you to look up and read. And some sample prayers. On Thursday, a heart that devises wicked plans. On Friday, feet that run to evil. And on Saturday, a false witness who lies. And then on Sunday, one who stirs up discord. There's some passages to look. I want you to pray through those. By the way, by the time you get to Saturday, we're having a day of prayer. 
And from 6 in the morning till 6 in the evening, this building's going to be open and we're praying in this room. We want you to come. I'd love for you to sign up. There's a sign-up sheet out there. that are in some of the connection classes today. There should be one in the foyer. To sign up for a 30-minute time slot where you can come and pray. You'll be given a prayer guide like this to pray through some things that we ask you to pray for for our congregation, for God's restoration and revival. That's principles and guidelines for prayer. Now let's just quickly, and I know you need to hear that word because some of you are worried. Look at all these blanks. How's he going to get through these? Guidelines for biblical fasting. I want you to look at Matthew because I just want to set the stage for the attitude that God desires for us to have. And I'm going to read a passage where Jesus spoke about prayer and one where he spoke about fasting. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I urge you, I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. God says when you pray, it's to be about your relationship with Him. Skip down with me in that same chapter to verse 16. So that's when you pray. Verse 16, whenever you fast, don't be sad-faced like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Don't go around looking like Eeyore. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face. In other words, clean yourself up so that you don't show your fasting to people, but to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret, sees in secret, will reward you. That's the mindset as we apply Nehemiah's fast. As we go through this week and you pray about a time, I want you to have that mindset and that attitude. So let me just give you a definition, tell you what fasting isn't, and then what fasting is. Fasting is not an attempt to manipulate God. Fasting is not an attempt to manipulate God. It is not a spiritual hunger strike. God, I'm going to do without food so you'll have to heal so-and-so or save so-and-so or make that happen. It's not manipulating him. It's not a time to focus on self. That's what the Hindus do. It's all about the inner light. I'm going to focus and get myself to that place of nirvana where I I experience God. That's not what it is. It's not hoops to jump through to get God's attention. God, if I I fast every day this week or if I fast one day a week for the next six months, then then you'll be pleased with me and and I'll have your attention and you'll really want to work in my life. No. Fasting is not a payment for sin. If you've messed up, you've messed up. If you've sinned, you've sinned. You know what the payment for sin is? The cross. He's already paid the price. You can't can't atone for your own sins. It's not a payment for sin. And it is not an attempt to make God love you anymore. It is not an attempt to make God love us anymore. Listen, God can't love you any more than he already loves you. God cannot express to you how special and how loved you are any more than he did at the cross. That is the demonstration. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love for us. In what? In this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You can't make him love you anymore. That's not what fasting is about. Number two, here's what fasting is. This simple definition. Fasting is a voluntary abstinence from food. Voluntarily abstaining from food. This is important. For a spiritual purpose. 
voluntarily abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. Now, if you fast, you may lose some weight. You may feel better. Those things may be good side effects, but that's not the purpose in a biblical fast. Here's what a biblical fast does. It gives you a sense of urgency in your prayer life. This is important enough that I'm stopping my routine, that I'm missing lunch today, that I'm skipping all my meals today. And and we'll talk about this in just a minute, that that maybe you you can't give up food for medical reasons or God doesn't lead you to that, to give something else up that's important to you. Maybe Pinterest or Facebook or your smartphone or whatever. Whatever it is that you would step back from, it gives an urgency to your prayers. It helps you express your heart of humility before God. Let her be. Helps us express our heart before God. A heart of humility and brokenness and grief and concern. God, I am so concerned about the spiritual state of our nation and our community and our church that I'm willing to set aside a time to specifically give up something like food so that I can focus on you. And it causes us to be more attentive to God to be more attentive to God. Marcrina Weidecker said this about fasting. Fasting makes me vulnerable and reminds me of my frailty. It reminds me to remember that if I am not fed, I will die. Standing before God, I'm hungry. I I suddenly know who I am. I am the one who is poor, called to be rich in a way that the world doesn't understand. I am one who is empty, called to be filled with the fullness of God. I am one who is hungry, called to taste all the goodness that can be made, that can be mine in Christ. I love that. To be more attentive and sensitive to his voice. And letter D, to be receptive to God's guidance. I don't know about you. But when I'm desperate in my prayer life, that's when I'm more open to God giving me leadership. It's when my prayers are routine and there's no urgency, there's no focus. It's when I just tend to go through my prayer life and say, I've done that and hit my little spiritual checklist. Anybody do that? Okay, 15 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day, whatever it is, five minutes, I did it. But there's a sense of urgency. God, I'm attentive to you, I'm receptive to you. And it helps me become aware of my own inadequacies and God's sufficiency. And I love, again, what Marcrina said, that my own inadequacies and God's sufficiency, I'm hungry, and he's the one who feeds me. Fasting, number three, fasting changes me, not God. I am not going to bend God's ear so that he has to do what I want because I fasted today. Fasting does a work in me as I'm seeking him. Number four is important. Let God call you to the fast. John Piper says, Christian fasting at its root is a hunger for a homesickness for God. Let God call you to that. Don't say, well, I'm fasting this week because my pastor said we needed to. That's great. I'll tell you what, I follow my pastor so faithfully. He said fast, I'm going to fast. That's not what we're talking about. If somebody should ask, if somebody should discover, which Jesus says, don't make a big deal about it. But if somebody should, you say, God's called me to this. He impressed upon my heart at Coastal Oaks while we were praying that I should do this, that I should give up breakfast or lunch for a day or two days or seven days or to give up uh, all my meals for one day or whatever. God impressed upon me to do that. Let God call you to that. And number five, begin where you are. If you've never done this before, go slow. Maybe, Maybe skip a meal this week, one day. Maybe leave something out of your diet that you love. Start where you are. I put together some frequently asked questions about our sacred assembly 
And at the bottom of the first page there, what, what, what is fasting and will I be required to fast? So there's an explanation of that. Pretty much what I've said, but some other things. I, I encourage you to do this. The sacred assembly is going to be the culmination of what we've been doing all month. We've been talking about God restoring his people. And we'll look next week at when God actually led the people, led the leadership to call the people to a sacred assembly where they come and they just say, God, here we are, we're your people. We confess, just like Nehemiah does in chapter 1, that we've sinned, and God, we ask your forgiveness, and we're going to give you an opportunity to testify. We're going to give you an opportunity to say, here's what God's been saying to me this week as I prayed and fasted. We're going to encourage one another. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. It's going to be a special time that leads into that. So here's some frequently asked questions that help you with that. So here's our truth that we've been focusing on all month. God wants to restore a broken people to the place spiritually where he alone is Lord and master of every area of our life so that he in turn can use us to draw lost people to himself. That's what it's all about. Back in the 1850s in New York City, things were desperate. Crime was rampant. It was almost in the place, the place of anarchy. And a man by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere, was called to go to that city and evangelize the city. He tried all the traditional means, put up posters, invited people to hear him preach, and nothing was working. So he stepped back, and in God's wisdom and God's sovereignty, he said, I'm just going to host a luncheon and invite business people to come and eat lunch with me and pray. And so he opened up a, 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 an opportunity to do that, and a few people came the first time, and then a few more the second time, and more the third time, and pretty soon they outgrew the building they were in, and they had to move to another building, and then another building, and thousands of people came to these prayer meetings that were, were just people coming together to pray. And it spread throughout that city. It's known as the Fulton Street Revival. And thousands of people came to know Christ as Savior because God's people came and they prayed and they sought Him. That's what I want to see. I want to see God move, and we are not able to say, we put on this program, we did it, we orchestrated. I just want to say all we did was prayed, and God showed up, because that's what he wants to do. Let's pray together.